Well, good morning again. Uh, This is, if you haven't noticed, this Sunday is a little different. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And for those of you who don't know or don't remember, Advent is uh, those four weeks leading up to Christmas, leading up to uh, the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Son of God into the world. And that's what Advent means. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It is the celebration of the coming of God into the world. But what's important for us to remember is that Advent is before Christmas. It's before the coming of Jesus. It's before the good news of great joy and the fulfillment of God's promises. And so Advent is a time of waiting. It's a time of longing, longing for God to come through On his promises. It's a time where we remember those Old Testament saints who are waiting on the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. But for Christians, us who live on the other side of Jesus' arrival, it's a time for us to reflect on what he did when he came, but also to long for his second coming when he will come again and bring all his promises to their final fulfillment. As we talked about in the series on Hebrews 11, we live in this time of fulfillment because Jesus has come. He has come and he is the yes to all of God's promises. But we also live in a time of waiting because we're still waiting on Jesus' return. We're still waiting for his kingdom to come in full and for all of those promises to reach their final completion. So over these next four weeks in Advent, we're going to listen to the word of God that came from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied from about 740 BC to about 680 BC. And this was a time that he prophesied of terrible loss for Israel. They'd seen many of God's promises come to fulfillment. They went from one man to an entire nation. God had finally planted them in the promised land. They had a king over them. They had a temple in which to worship. He had given them protection and success over their enemies. But Isaiah is the messenger who tells them that all of those things are going to be taken away from them. The basic message of Isaiah is both judgment and hope. Isaiah is very clear that the judgment of God is coming upon Israel because they have turned from God. They have rejected him as their God, and so he's sending them into exile. But he is equally clear that this does not mean that the promises of God are void or have failed. None of this nullifies what God is doing. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss, in the midst of their waiting, God is doing something. In fact, what Isaiah is going to tell us is that it's in the loss, in the pain, and even in the judgment that God is going to bring about their salvation, that he is going to bring their prom- his promises to fulfillment. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Isaiah chapter 2? And this is a rather long chapter. It's 22 verses. So if you do have your Bibles, please turn there so that you can see some of the context of what 
we're going to talk about and what God has to say to us this morning. But before we read Isaiah 2, let's ask for God's help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your son, Jesus Christ, and the joy and hope that he has brought us. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of the things, of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks And the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, 
For of what account is he? This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah 2 tells us that there is going to be a day where God will reign as king over all things. He says, in the latter days, the mountain of God, which is a symbol for the worship of God, his glory is going to raise up and be exalted above everything else. This has a double meaning for God's people. It first means that all the rival religions of the world will give way to worship of the one true God. But this is also a criticism against God's people. Because as we just saw, they have lifted plenty of things up higher than God. More than anything else, they have lifted themselves up. They are proud, they are haughty, they are lofty. And so when the Lord says that there will come a day where He alone will be exalted, He is telling His people both in judgment and in hope that on that day He will pull His own people down from their pride and their arrogance and He will crush their idols that they have been worshiping in place of Him. And while this is certainly God's judgment on them, it is also His kindness to them. Because pride and idolatry aren't just wrong, they're destructive and harmful to those who do them. It's not that God is selfish and self-seeking to exalt Himself alone. No, He knows that it is for the good and the joy of all peoples to worship Him. Because as the church father Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So the judgment of ripping away our idols is the blessing of making us rest upon the true God alone. As we look at this passage, first we're going to look at the second half of the chapter in verses 6 through 21, which show the current Jerusalem, the current state of God's people, the dreadful reality of what they have become. Then second, we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 and the hope that God gives them of their future. This is the promised Jerusalem, what God's people and the whole world will look like when He visits them. And then finally, we're going to focus on the two commands in this text that are found in verse 5 and verse 22. These commands are what God tells us we are to do while we wait for that day and as we seek to be the people whom He has called us to be. Verse 6 begins showing us the picture of the current Jerusalem. And the first thing that we see in verse 6 is a scathing review of what God's people have become. This is the reason that God gives for why He is going to judge them. Let's read verses 6 through 9 together. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. 
He begins by saying that God has rejected his people, and he tells us why. Notice the because in the middle of verse 6. This is the reason why they are being judged. They are being judged because they are full of four things. Do you see the repetition of the word full and filled in verses 6 through 9? They are full of things from the east. Their land is filled with silver and gold. Their land is filled with horses. And finally, their land is filled with idols. These are pictures for us. They are filled up first with worldly wisdom, things from the east, fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands. In other words, they are making deals and alliances with the pagan nations around them. They're filled with worldly wisdom. Then we see that they're filled with worldly wealth. There is no end to their treasures, and Israel brags about the treasures that they have like the rest of the world. They're also filled up with worldly means of protection. It's not that God doesn't like horses. Notice that their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. These are weapons for war. This is how Israel has grown to feel secure and protected in the exact same way that the world around them feels secure and protected. And then they are filled up with worldly religion. They have so abandoned God that they worship just like the rest of the world. They don't worship the one who made them. Instead, they worship the things that they have made. They are filled with all the things of the world, and the implication is that they have no room in them for being filled with the things of God. They aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. They aren't filled with the Word of God. They aren't hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They don't want or need those things because they have plenty of what the world has to offer. And before we pat ourselves on the back for not being like them because we are in here, I think it's important for us to see what Israel was doing. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, he relays to them God's disapproval of them, but notice what he says. This is chapter 1 beginning in verse 11. God says to them, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, and then he goes on and tells them all the things that they are doing when they appear before him in worship and how it is not pleasing to him. He mentions their offerings, their burning of incense, their Sabbath and new moon festivals, and even their prayers. These people are diligently showing up for worship. They pray to God. They make sacrifices and offerings. They hold feasts to Him. And God looks at them and says that they are full, not of the things of God, but of the things of the world. And this tells us something. It tells us that you can show up for worship week in and week out. You can learn your catechism and your Bible verses. You can be serving on eight different teams in the church. You can even post Bible verses and quotes from songs to your Instagram, and your life can still be filled with the things 
of the world to the neglect of the things of God. One of the ways that Isaiah focuses in that is the key to knowing that if you are knowing whether you are filled with the things of the world is pride. Notice what he says in the next 12 verses. These 12 verses talk about the judgment of God that will come on that day, on the day of the Lord, the day that Isaiah calls in verse 2, the latter days. Notice how many times he talks about pride and arrogance and haughtiness in these verses. Look first at verse 11. He says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It's not just mankind in general, but even God's people have lifted themselves up in pride and pushed God down to the lower levels of their life. And so God says that he will raise himself up, he alone will be exalted, and he will pull his people down from their lofty places. Verse 12 says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. In the rest of this section, he mentions those who are lofty, lifted up, the lofty mountains, the uplifted hills, every high tower, the haughtiness of man, and the lofty pride of men. All these things are characteristic of those who have filled themselves up with the world. And hear this, pride does not necessarily mean that you are strutting around, that you have bravado and self-confidence. Pride is not being an extrovert, and it's not a personality trait. Pride is saying and acting like you have no need of God. It's independence. It's pretending that you are self-sufficient. So we are called here to examine ourselves. Do you feel your need of Jesus? Do you long and hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit? Do you come to God with open hands and a humble heart? Or when you hear the word of the Lord, do you measure it by your own wisdom and the wisdom of whatever podcast you listen to this week? Have you let the world shape your mind and even your ambition more than the word of God? Have you lifted yourself up and pushed God down? This is what Israel looked like in Isaiah's day. The nation that was chosen to be a light to the other nations has instead adopted the ways and the wisdom of those other nations. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, salt that loses its saltiness is no longer good for anything. It has no distinct flavor. Israel is no different than the other nations. They aren't characterized by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. They're characterized by worldly wisdom. And because of that, they have nothing to offer the world. The world already has worldly wisdom. If Israel has that, they can't give the world anything that it does not already have. Just like the salt that loses its saltiness, it just takes on the flavor of whatever food is around it. Israel's not distinct from the nations. Instead, they look exactly like them. And so, God tells them they will be brought low 
and their pride will be torn down. But Isaiah tells us this is not how things will always be. What we just read is the current state of Jerusalem, but God promises a different future for his people. Judgment is not the end of the story. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Verse 4 tells us the societal results of what God is going to do. No more war. Nations are beating their swords and their spears into farm equipment. Tools for destruction and death have now become tools for growth and life. Notice it's not just that there is some semi-stable ceasefire agreement. Nations will stop teaching the strategies of war. They won't tell their children how to defend themselves because they don't need to know anymore. There is no war and there isn't even the intention or the planning for war. Why not? Because we have a perfect king. Every dispute that comes to him, he decides with perfect wisdom and perfect justice. Some of us hear that future reality and we long for that more than we long for the new religious reality of verses 2 and 3. But please take note that the societal reality of verse 4 can only come because the religious reality of verses 2 and 3 has come. The first thing we see in this future religious reality is what Isaiah says in verse 2. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. In the ancient world, temples and places of worship were built on mountains and on hills. They were thought to be closer to the heavens. Think of the way that the Tower of Babel is talked about in Genesis 11. They are high up, closer to God. And so they are a picture of worship. And as we've already seen in the rest of the chapter, Israel internally has placed God low. God promises them that a day is coming where he will raise himself up above everything in their lives, but not just above everything in their lives, above all the other mountains and hills and high places in the world. God will not only be lifted up in Israel, he will be lifted up among every nation, above every mountain of every false god and idol. And look what happens in that day. 
all the nations will flow to it. They will flow to the God of Israel to worship Him. This is not just the nation of Israel cleaning themselves up and coming to worship God and laying down the things of the world. This is all the nations of the world worshiping the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. They will abandon their false gods and their idols and the worship of the things that they themselves have made. And they will bow down before the God of Israel. Look what they'll say to one another. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. These people are not accepting some nominal, some in-name-only form of Christianity. They are streaming to the house of God, longing to be taught His ways so that they can walk in His paths. They are hungry for God's Word and for living a new life of righteousness and holiness. And we're told why. We're told why they are streaming upward to the house of God, to the new Jerusalem. It's because of what comes out of it. For, this is the middle of verse 3, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. These people are longing to go to Zion, to go to the mountain of the Lord, to learn His ways and walk in His paths because they know that His word will be found there. Zion will have a reputation for the law of God and the word of God streaming out of her. Notice the contrast with the way that Israel is currently known. They are known for being filled with the things of the world. They will be known for the law of God and the word of God flowing out from her. These nations aren't going to Jerusalem to get worldly wisdom or military tactics or wealth. They're coming to Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord. This religious renewal is the only way that the society renewal of verse 4 will happen. The reality of a new city is only the reality of a new city where God is king and his mountain is raised above all other mountains. And before your cynicism sets in and you say, that sounds like a pie in the sky, it sure sounds good, but that is not the world that we live in. Remember where you are in the story. God has come into the world. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We don't live in the days of exile. We live in the days of resurrection. What does Mary say in her song when she hears that Jesus is coming? She says, the Lord has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She is declaring that the prophecy of Isaiah is coming true in the coming of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus has come into the world to bring down the lofty pride of men and exalt the humble. He has raised the mountain of the Lord and all nations are flocking to it. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost, and this is what continues to happen today. The nations are throwing down their idols and streaming to the mountain of the Lord, 
hungry for his word. I don't know all of you and all of your ethnic background, but I would imagine that most of us in this room are not Jewish. We are here today because that prophecy has come true. We are the nations that are flocking to Christ to worship Him. We are the ones who are not sitting with a small group in Jerusalem, but are sitting in Murfreesboro, Tennessee this morning, saying to one another, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. And they are saying the same thing this morning in Argentina and Poland and Indonesia and Nigeria and countless other places. The nations are flocking to Christ. Even though the day of the Lord is proven to come in stages, the truth is that the day of the Lord has dawned. Jesus has come and he has brought about the beginnings of the new covenant. He is sitting on his throne, ruling over the nations. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon his church and is purging us of the things of the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. For that reason, as Christians, we should not be a pessimistic people. I know that Christian influence is waning in our country. I know that God's law, which used to have a foothold in this part of the world, doesn't have that foothold in the same way anymore. I know, I know that we still deal with sin and pain and suffering. But brothers and sisters, we are not in exile waiting on the Messiah. Jesus has come. And he has brought salvation and forgiveness of sins. He is sitting on his throne, pouring out his spirit upon the nations, making us into a new creation. He is building his church and he tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against her. It's true that we are still strangers and exiles in this world, but we are also subjects of the king who is sitting at the right hand of God. We have every reason for hope and for confidence. And yet, because this day of the Lord has come in stages, we are still waiting. We are waiting for the return of the King. We are waiting for the worship of Jesus to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We are waiting for our own heart to spew out the world's wisdom and wealth, and protection, and idolatry, and instead fill ourselves with God's Spirit and God's Word. We are waiting for a world and a city like we read about in verse 4, that has no war, or preparation, or intention for war ever again. We are waiting for pain, and sin, and death to end. We are still waiting on that promised city that the King will bring. And so these final two commands that Isaiah gives to Israel are still God's commands for us as we wait. First, the command of verse 22. He says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? We as the church must fight 
to stop regarding man and the approval of the world and instead regard God and work to please and glorify and obey Him alone. We must do this here. We must do this in our lives in the rest of the world. We are not to be people pleasers, but instead we are to work for the glory of God. This is the answer to our pride and our independence and our filling ourselves up with the things of the world. The second command, which is the only true power to obey the first command of verse 22, is found in verse 5. Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light has dawned. Jesus, who is the light of the world, has come into the world. And so as we wait for him to come again and make all things new, we don't wait in darkness. We don't wait huddled in a corner. We wait in joy and in hope. We wait in confidence. We wait not just seeing the light of Jesus, but shining the light of Jesus to the world and declaring the good news of great joy that is for all people. A Savior has been, has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that you saw us in darkness and entangled in our own sin and you didn't leave us there, but you sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sin and to bring about a new creation. We pray as we wait for the final fulfillment of that promise, Lord, come quickly. And in the meantime, give us strength. Give us confidence to walk in the light of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.